Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Our guest today is M.J. Fiev. Her memoir, A Sky, the Color of Chaos, covers her childhood in Haiti, primarily during the 90s. This memoir is MJ's first book in English, but she's written nine books in French. She now lives in South Florida. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of A Sky, the Color of Chaos on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. MJ, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Morva. I'm glad that we are doing this. In so many ways, your memoir seems to be about your relationship with your father. Uh, The two of you had a bit of a rocky relationship, and he was abusive at times to both you and your mother, yet you still found a lot to admire about him, and you seem to want his approval. How hard was it for you to write about these things? I mean, at one point you write that you knew you were not supposed to talk about this abuse that happened in your home, but now you've decided to write about it in such a public way. Well, I've always had a very weird relationship with nonfiction because I come from a culture where it's frowned upon to reveal secrets about your family. So I never even imagined that I would write about what was going on at home when I was growing up. It took years for me to write this book because of that. When I started taking classes for my master's degree at FIU, I was in the creative writing program. That's when I started writing um, stories about Haiti, real stories about Haiti, about growing up with a difficult father. And um, the completion of the book took about eight years. Well, your father is deceased now, correct? Yes, he passed away a few years ago. Did he get a chance to read anything you had written? Did he get a chance to read this memoir? No, he didn't, um, for different reasons. The first one being that the memoir is in English, and um, in Haiti we're Creole and French speakers. But he knew I was writing about growing up in Haiti, so uh, I'm pretty sure he knew that it was going to be in the book. What I think, however, is that um, he didn't realize how much of an impact all this violence had on me and on my sisters. I can speak for my mother, but I can speak for um, my sisters because I've had conversation about this particular topic with them. There, there is this idea in Haiti that mental health, mental issues is all in the brain, uh, no pun intended, that there is so much that we have to fight for every day. Um, Violence in the street, um, a cruise um, in the National Palace, and other urgent needs or needs that are considered more urgent that um, I don't think that parents necessarily think about the emotional aspect of living in Haiti. And I, I have to say, I had a conversation with my dad um, before he died, maybe a year or two before he died. 
And I don't know how it led to the discussion of how he was as a father and how violent he had been. And I think that's the first time ever he realized how bad things had been for me. And that day my father cried. And that that was really um, the point where, where I realized I need to write this book, not only for the victim of violence, but also for the people who are doing the violence, because sometimes they don't realize the impact of it on other people. Well, you just mentioned this a little bit about the rest of your family, that you talked to your sisters about this. Um, at one point in the book, your mother says she feared that you would become a poet. And, of course, we you know, know now that that did come true. Um, what does your family think about your career and the fact that you wrote this book? As far as the career goes, it's not surprising that if you live in a country like Haiti, your parents would worry about your choices because... Um, most writers are journalists, and it's a very difficult country to be a journalist in. A lot of journalists pay with their lives, particularly female journalists, because they considered as not belonging in the profession to begin with, since the profession is a really sexist one. So it was a legitimate uh, worry that I would go that way. And my mom, sa- my mom knows that when I have something um, in mind, it's really difficult to get it out. So she was making sure that, that there was no seed. The second reason why parents would worry that their kids would embrace writing is that there's no money in writing anywhere in Haiti or otherwise. So when you come from... Um, a family that is lucky enough to be able to afford an education, they they think that you should take this privilege very seriously and not waste your potential on a profession that doesn't bring any um, in real income. So um, the the closest profession when you talk about writing is teaching, which is also not really uh, a money-making profession, as everybody knows, but at least there's something noble, noble in it. And you can, uh, they see teachers as, as people who have the opportunity to study something else and then teach that particular thing. My dad was a teacher, but he was a law teacher, meaning he had a law degree, he could still practice. My mom was a teacher, but um, she was also an economist, so she was teaching at night, but she could have a regular job. So uh, in that sense, I could understand why they didn't want me to be a teacher. And I think I kind of kept those preoccupations um, in mind because I did become a teacher, but I also became other things. Um, I became a writer and I became other things. So. Um, really, I work as a writer, I teach writing, but I am also a court interpreter. My degree is in education, but I also do a lot of freelancing um, work, consulting work that has nothing to do that, ha- that has nothing to do with education. So that um, I did take those concerns seriously. 
I think my mom is proud of what I've accomplished in Haiti with my writing because I write a lot of novels for young adults and I know that I'm an inspiration for a lot of kids there. As far as the memoir, we stopped talking for a while because it was really difficult for her to accept the fact that I could talk about such intimate things. Writing fiction is one thing, writing about your real life is something else. When you come from a country where everything that happens behind closed doors is supposed to remain a secret. Um, I think she's still digesting the fact that the book is out. I think she's relieved that the book is in English, so um, her world is not completely affected by it. It's going to take time for us to heal after um, the the hurtful following, <laughs> the, the hurtful consequences of the book getting published in terms of our relationships within the family. And in the book, you have one sister you talk about, but you have other sisters as well. Why did you make the decision to just have you, you know, one sister be portrayed in the book? Right. Um, that was a conscious decision. Um, when, when I had conversations with my sisters, I had one sister who didn't care one way or the other. So it's your story. Talk about it if you want, although it's also mine. It's yours. That's what she told me. I had another sister who didn't want to hear about the book at all. She's like, well, publish it. It's your right, but don't talk to me about it. And the third sister was completely against it. And their main concern was privacy, of course, because the story is mine, but it's also their story. I have a right to tell it, but they have a right to be opposed to the idea. So my decision to combine them into one was motivated by the fact that I wanted to protect their privacy somewhat. There is a scene where one of my sisters jumps on the balcony. I didn't want to reveal which one of the sisters was uh, it was. Things like that I wanted to be able to to say, hey, my sister without having to specify which one. The second reason why I merged them is because it felt natural to do so. I'm the youngest of four sisters, so that I always felt like um, they were this entity there to protect me and torture me too at time, at times, so that it was okay for me to refer to them as that one person in my life. Throughout the book, you give information about Haitian history and words that may be unfamiliar to readers in the U.S. through footnotes. Did you feel some pressure that you had to present Haiti in the right way? The footnotes were really important to me just because I know that my readers wouldn't necessarily know about Haiti. Attending FIU with such a diverse um, culture there. Um, I had students in my workshop, well, fellow students of very, very different backgrounds, which taught me to think outside the box. I'm not writing the book for just one audience. I'm not writing the book for people of Haitian descent. Um, I'm also writing the book for uh, people who know nothing about Haiti. 
So um, if you are from Haiti, a lot of what I'm referring to, you just know, because Haitians spend a lot of time talking about history and politics. But if you don't know anything about Haiti, in the book provides a lot of information that would have been difficult to take in without um, the footnotes. So it was, I think, necessary. I did get um, some negative feedback regarding the footnotes. In um, um, all the reviews so far of the book have been positive, um, except for um, two or three people who thought that the footnotes were a problem that they take people away from the narrative, that I could have worked them um, within the, the, the plot itself. But I still disagree. I think that if you have to ignore footnotes, just ignore them. Um, those footnotes are there to give additional information. They don't necessarily change the story in terms of what's going on. They just give you a deeper understanding. Personally, when I read books with footnotes that skip all the footnotes. So um, I didn't really see them as an interruption. I just um, saw them as a little extra um, piece of knowledge that is provided to you without you, the reader, having to go online and Google it. Well, as a daughter of Haiti, though, did you feel added pressure that you had to set the record straight, if you will, on, you know, these things that happened historically in Haiti. Is that part of the reason why you included these footnotes? That's part of it, too, because the footnotes show that um, there was a lot of research involved. And the reason why there was a lot of research, I wanted to be um, right on point in terms of what happened in Haiti in the 90s. There are a lot of books out there about um, the Papa Doc regime, the Baby Doc regime, and more recent years with the earthquake. But it's very difficult to find um, memoirs. I'm not referring to all kinds of nonfiction. I'm referring specifically about memoirs. It's really difficult to find memoirs about um, the era of the president priest. So I wanted my book to be it, to be the book you could refer to when you wanted to know what life was like um, during those years. So I took research very seriously, and if, I, if I'm going to leave a, a, a book, if I'm going to leave a book for future generations, a book that they can refer to to talk about this time period, it is my responsibility as a writer and as a daughter of Haiti to provide information that is accurate. And yes, including the footnotes was part of this process. The threat of violence is a constant throughout this book due to the instability in Haiti at the time. I mean, you heard gunfire outside your home on a regular basis. You even saw someone murdered as a young child. At the time, did you even realize how bad things were? Or since this was the only life you knew, did it just seem normal? I knew that, that there was something else out there, but I didn't know how bad my life was. I knew that my life was different from the, the lives of people living in more stable countries, like maybe um, parts of the U.S. or um, 
countries in Europe. I watch a lot of TV, so um, there there were those shows with uh, the perfect family, you know, where there's no violence. And of course, even as a kid, you know, it's just TV, so um, it's not real life. But I knew that it was possible that some people actually can have relationships that don't involve violence, either physical or verbal or emotional. So I knew that there was better, but I still didn't realize how much better it could be. So so that I learned to to um accept it for what it was and although I was striving to get out of the situation, I think that part of me never thought that it would actually happen, that it would be possible. And I think it's a reflection of what happened. So a lot of people were victim of vi- victims of violence. Sometimes they ask individuals, why, why did you stay? And the answer is, I didn't know any better. And it's true, you don't realize how bad it is. You don't re- realize that it's really, really possible to withdraw from all that violence. Well, as a child, though, you really didn't have much choice. I mean, the fact that you were you know, being raised in Haiti at this time, I mean, it's not like you could say, oh, I'd just like to move to the U.S. when you're 8 right. or 10. Of course, but um, I've always been a for- forward thinker. So even as a child, I knew, okay, I'm a child today, but I'm going to be an adult tomorrow, and I'm going to be able to make choices. And I think that's always what has kept me going, the idea of tomorrow. And I, I remember watching Annie uh, on TV, and this was such an important movie for me because although it was another kind of abandonment that she went through being an orphan, but uh, the victims of violence, I think, really feel like orphans sometimes because love is taken away from them and they're isolated from that comforting, uh, fulfilling life that they could have. And of course, everybody knows this part about singing, uh, that singing part about tomorrow. That's something that I really kept dear to my my heart, the fact that, yes, there's always tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'll be a teenager. Tomorrow, I'll be uh, an adult. Tomorrow, I'll be a grandmother. And the knowledge that maybe, only maybe things will get better. And even if the the possibility is just 1%, I need to keep fighting for it. And when you say that, are you referring to both what was going on in Haiti at large as, you know, all the violence in the streets, as well as what you were experiencing in your home? I'm mostly referring to what I was experiencing in my home because part of me knew that I wouldn't be in Haiti forever. Part of me knew that I would do whatever it took to leave the country. Um, And there's a lot of talk about immigration, and um, I hear both sides. People will come to this country to escape um, violence and misery, and people um, who are already in the country would would like to stop the influx of immigrants, particularly those who come without any paperwork. And although I understand that they're breaking the law, and I understand that there needs to be some kind of middle ground for 
immigrants without legal status. I can understand why someone would do whatever it takes to get away from a situation. And I knew from a very young age that I would do whatever it took to get out of Haiti. I was able to leave leave the country legally and become a, a U.S. resident and then a U.S. citizen. But I don't know if I had been in the situation where I had to come in other ways, maybe I would have. You went through a period where you were worried that you also carried the rage that caused your father to lash out. Um, but you and your sister in the book often lost yourselves in books as children, seemingly as some sort of escape. What role did reading play for you as a child during all of this upheaval, both inside and outside of your home? I get so excited whenever I, I have to talk about reading in books, more so than if I have to talk about my own. Um, books were my salvation. Oh, my God. I, I can't remember a time when I didn't read. I was very, very young when one of my sisters, Patricia, introduced me to books. Um, I knew about reading, of course. I knew how to read. I had gone to school. Um, but I never thought, I never imagined that I could read without being assigned uh, reading. And she introduced me to books that you could actually um, enjoy, that you could read for leisure. And that was the most revolutionary act that she could have done, telling me, you know, here, use a book and life gets better. Um, I'm very thankful for that. Books help me escape. They help me see um, another future. They help me um, imagine things that were not there. I, I was really saved by books. When people go through um, potentially destructive situations, and I'm talking about the mind here, how some people don't come out safe and sound from those situations even when the situation is no longer there. Um, I was lucky to have found books to help me through um, traumatic events. Despite all that was going on during this time in your life, as you alluded to where you talked about your parents' jobs, your family was pretty privileged in this time. Um, your parents had professional jobs. Uh, you went to a private Catholic school. You had servants. And some people resented you for this. You talk about you know, your skin. Some people resented the fact that you had this light skin. Were these issues um, hard for you to understand when you were a child, sort of how you know, the different classes interacted in Haiti? They, they always puzzled me because people saw me in a place of privilege, but I didn't because I knew uh, how hard my parents worked, for instance. And for me, the idea of privilege was you don't have to work too much because you have so much money that you, can, you, you don't need an eight to five. My parents worked hard, so I didn't see it as a privilege. And as far as the color of my, my skin, it was even more puzzling to me because I always saw myself, well, just, I'm just a black woman. And the fact that someone could compare shades 
was astonishing to me. I was aware of it. You are aware of it all the time. And there are so many people who are lighter than me when, when I thought about it as a kid. I'm like, why, I mean, why would someone see me as different just because um, I'm just a little bit lighter? So it was puzzling, but um, at the same time, you know that's how things work. Um, it, I, I just questioned it all the time, and it took me... Um, years and years to come to terms to the fact that it's it's a Caribbean thing. It's a it, it, it's a reflection of a culture that has been influenced by by um, colonialism and all the consequence of having had slaves that were. That, that were told that they were nothing so that even when we became free and Haiti is the first bl free black nation um, even when we became free we were still in chains in terms of mentality and the idea of what beauty is supposed to be of what what makes someone powerful and um, it's, it's still a learning experience for me to understand the mechanisms of Haitian thought At 13 and 14, you were smoking and drinking and going to clubs, dating older men. Was having this type of freedom typical for kids of your class growing up in Haiti at the time? Um, I want to say yes. I, I, I think that many parents are not aware of what's going on when the kids go out. They have this idea, okay, it's a... It's a party at a friend's house. Parents are going to be there. Very often the parents were not there. So there, there's a lot going on, and I think even more so today than during my time. Um, and it came down to education, what you learned at home. Your, you know, um, some kids um, had no no supervision whatsoever anywhere at home so they did things that were a little bit wilder I still carried my mother's voice in my head although I did a few things like smoking and drinking I never got really drunk um, and even the smoking it was a few times not uh, it, it wasn't a, an arbitral thing just because you know I kept thinking about what my mom would say so um but, you know, the possibility of losing yourself out there is real. Some of my friends are still smoking years later and dealing with the consequences of being regular smokers. Um, some of my friends are still dealing with uh, problems related to drug and alcohol. And I think the seed of all those problems was um, the seed was those, that type of freedom that we had, particularly during the years of the embargo when our parents had to keep working every day but there was no gasoline available so that schools couldn't function normally. We only went to school two or three times a week and the days we stay, stayed home were pretty uh, free <laughs> um, so that we this experience either made us or broke us 
some people discovered that they could be, um, a, well, they, they could act like adults before they were and be responsible and do the right thing, while others discovered that they were not ready for all that freedom and made the wrong choices. One thing that stood out to me is that you were having these big parties, like for your for your birthday, and you would have them at your parents' home, and you know people, young people would be drinking, and your father had been portrayed as so strict. It was, I was, it was a little hard for me to understand, you know, how he was allowing this, but then you do say that there was no drinking age at the time. Right, Haiti is pretty free in terms of drinking. There is no legal drinking age, and if there is, no one knows what it is. Um, it, everything that is frowned upon here in the U.S., like uh, advertising to kids when it comes to alcohol and um, cigarettes, we don't have those limitations in Haiti. So um, kids smoke, kids drink. Um, the smoking is not seen well at all. Um, by parents, but kids do it behind their parents' back, and um, some parents are well aware. The drinking, though, is such a big part of the culture for positive and negative events. Someone dies and everybody's drinking. Um, You know, the wake will last until the wee hours in the morning, and everybody's having beer and rum and, and cocktails. So that as soon as you can show some moderation, your parents will be okay with it. Um, they, they, they will accept it. But of course, once you start misbehaving, getting really drunk, then that's a problem. So you speak English and French and Creole and Spanish. What does having all those languages in your head do for your writing? You know, it's it's funny. I was having this discussion this morning with a student. A student contacted me. He was really worried about taking my writing class because he speaks um, several languages. He's a young man from Brazil, and he said that all those languages were driving him crazy, fighting for his attention, so that when he was trying to write in English, it was such... Um, a difficulty. And I told him, you know, I understand the concept of language interference because I speak several languages, but there is such a richness that several languages bring because you learn to think deeper about words and their meaning and how um, you can have uh, false cognates and all those things that people who only speak one language don't have to deal with. So that when you start writing, you learn to choose the right words. And I think speaking all those languages have helped me in that sense, that I weigh my choices very carefully, particularly um, when dealing with French and Haitian Creole. I come from a country where our the, the way we express ourselves is very different from the way someone from France would express themselves. And we're able to, to switch gears. Um, we know when we're, talk, when we're talking and the, what we're using is Haitian French in comparison to regular French. 
and it it really helps to know the difference because um, you bring expressions that really enrich your language and people who don't speak Creole get it but they wouldn't necessarily know how to come up with it so there's a, a real um, sense of originality in the way our French is written. And I think a lot of that is brought into English as well. When I write in English, sometimes the comparisons I, I, I use um, are actually pretty common in, in, in Haitian Creole, but people are amazed at how, it, how they work with English, those similes and those metaphors. Um, I, I want to focus on the positive. Sometimes I am lost in translation. Um, and some t I, I think that a lot of what I deal with in terms of sometimes not being able to remember words is because so many languages are fighting for my attention, like my student said. But there's so much um, beauty that comes out of speaking several languages that I wouldn't give it up for anything. Well, when it came time to write your memoir, why did you decide to go with English? Um, we talked about you've written nine books in French already, but for your memoir, you wanted it to be in English. Why did you make that decision? It felt right. Um, Creole didn't feel right because although Creole is my first language, and I and I often dream in Creole. And when when I'm I'm out of control in terms of emotions, if I'm grieving or if I'm angry, the first language that comes to me is Creole. I I've never written in Creole, so for sure the memoir wasn't going to be in Creole. As for French, um, French brought me back to Haiti and I could hear my mother's voice in my head uh, admonishing me for writing this book and it didn't feel right in French. Um, English is a very accepting language because I associate it to living in the U.S. where I was finally able to find peace of mind and um, safety so that it just felt right to, to, to express such a difficult story in English. There was no commitment. I could get away from um, the language of the people I was writing about. I could share my craft with people who didn't know about Haiti or who no longer lived in Haiti and wanted to be brought back to an earlier life. So that it just felt like it felt like the good choice. It seems like it was also some sort of protection in a way because there's so many people who don't read English who um, you know, maybe were in this book and that would keep them from reading it as well. Part of it, yes. I, I, I have to say that when I write, I'm really detached from, from the audience. What is so-and-so going to think? I... I, I think about it during my editing stages when I really start thinking about um, how will the book work, how is how will it be marketable, and whether and when I I'm trying to gauge whether I've had an open mind writing the book. But when I'm actually doing the writing, I don't think about anybody and. 
um, on a conscious level anyway. But I think that you're right, on an unconscious level, I was worried about um, being exposed, I guess, as revealing secrets that I was not supposed to, and that also worked in that way, English was safer. Well, switching gears now to talk about your reading life, we've already touched on that a little bit, but you know, here at Read More, we always like to know how writers have been influenced by what they read. What was the first thing that you read that really resonated with you in a deep way? Well, you know, everything I read <laughs> resonates with me, so it's it's a very difficult question. Um, I read everything. I read everybody, um, and I think that that that's why I'm so open to writing in different genres too. I write nonfiction, fiction, poetry, um, plays nowadays. I'm I'm always interested in what writers have to say. I'm interested in different types of writing. If I'm not reading the newspaper, I'll read a poem. Um, so um, this question is a bit difficult. I can tell you about writers I particularly admire and writers I'm reading now. Um, I really love Chekhov just because he really understands human nature and what makes a great story is the main, well, not the main character, all the characters, and is so, so good at putting you in the shoes of those characters. So um, for sure, if, if I were to choose three books to bring on a deserted island with me, um, I would bring a collection of Chekhov short stories. Um, other writers I can think of um, just because I really love short stories. Um, Stephen King has always been on top of my list. Um, I don't necessarily read all his novels, but I'm fascinated by his short stories. And um, I will choose short stories over novels anytime. Another writer that I really love is Tanana Reeve too, and I, I know that you've um, interviewed her for this podcast. Again, her short stories, and the last one I read was the, the uh, was titled Ghost Summer, and it's a fascinating book. And um, I, I read a lot of anthologies, and I have an appreciation for dark stories, um, very noir, and of course Alfred Hitchcock is well known for collecting those stories, so they are by different authors, but you know what you're signing up for when you pick up the book. So in terms of um, books that for sure I would take with me, those would be the four writers. It's not necessarily that they've impacted my writing or they've changed my life, it's just that I find them amazing and if if I were to choose to be someone else, someone other than MJ, I would probably choose to be either Stephen King, uh, Tanana Rivdu, or Chekhov. Uh, um, I, I mentioned earlier that I read almost anything. These days I'm really into mangas particularly two collections. Um, the first, the one I'm reading right now is called um, Death Note and is it's by a Japanese writer named 
Sugumi Oba. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right. And there's another collection called um, Zombie Powder. Actually, I'm, I'm holding on to the last book. I don't want to read it just because I don't want it to end. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm having fun. I'm reading a lot of graphic novels. I just got myself Neil Gaiman, Sandman. I'm reading um, The Dark Tower by Stephen King in graphic novel format. As far as contemporary writers who live right here in Miami, I'm in love with John Dufresne's books. And the one that is my forever favorite is titled Journey Too Bad. There are other writers who don't live in South Florida, but that I follow very... Um, there are other writers who are not from South Florida, but um, I'm following them very closely. There's this very interesting guy named Mark Brzeitis, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name. He wrote a um, book called Truth Poker. Fascinating. It's a collection of short stories. And there's Ben Parsibok, who wrote Sherwood Nation, where he imagines the world if, there, if there's no more water, what would happen to the um, civilization, to our civilization if suddenly we had to ration um, water. So um, those writers I'm enjoying very much these days. Well, when you were learning English, and then once you started reading English, do you remember the first person you read in English and you really enjoyed their work? Oh, yeah. I was reading Sweet Valley High, <laughs> and sometimes I had no idea what was going on because um, I was learning the basics in, in, in school, but not enough for me to understand um, a book at that point so I was basically teaching myself through reading so sometimes I had no idea what was going on I got some sense of it I understood a few paragraphs and others I was completely missing and but I kept on going I read I think the whole collection um, or as much as we had anyway we, we had tons of them um, there, there was this bookstore down the street what you did you brought an old book and you exchanged it for one or two dollars so that you could just keep on going and get books in English or Spanish for very cheap so that we read at least 20 or 25 books when I say we my sister um, who introduced me to, to reading uh, we, we would have those competitions and see how many books we read and who was winning every month and we had to pay up if we, <laughs> if we didn't win so um, that's how I learned to, to read in English those were the first books and then there were, um, just, there were those books from this scary collection Goosebumps that were popular at the time in the U.S. and made their way um, to Haiti in both languages, but we made sure that we read them in English just so that we could keep working on our um, language skills. Well, you, as you mentioned, I mean, you just love to read and you read some of everything. So I want to ask you about something on sort of the flip side of that. 
Is there any book that stands out to you that maybe you have tried to read several times but have not been able to finish it? When when I was a teenager, you know, you're, you're starting to think about boys and so many girls were reading those eloquent books and I think I read one and oh my God, I, I, I felt it was an insult to literature, just how flat the characters were. And I guess I was a germinating feminist. I just couldn't um, phantom being a, a woman whose life was, would revolve completely around, um, you know, taking care of a man. Um, I have nothing against love, against being caring, but those books teach you to 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 be dominated, to be a lesser than, and I hated them. And um, I, by by the same token, though, although they are horrible books, and I would never read them, so many people would not read otherwise. I had a lot of friends; those were the only books they were willing to to read. So now that I'm old enough to be a parent, although I'm not, I am a teacher. You you think about well. Maybe if someone is not going to read at all, maybe we just have to accept that at least they are reading something. But I, I was really frustrated that such books could even exist. So what are you working on right now, MJ? Um, so many things. I'm always working on something, and um, I think that's part, that's part of the reason why it takes me forever to have something new, because I work on several projects at the same time. Um, so for now, I'm working on a graphic novel with another writer and an artist. It, it's going to take some time because um, collaborative work when you live in South Florida with your hectic schedule and the difficulties of, of um, getting together and discuss work. So this will take a while. I'm also working on a new play. I've been really interested in plays recently. I've had two of my plays performed at, at the Miami uh, Micro Theater, and another performed um, Jingo Miami for Poetry Press Week. Um, so I'm writing a new play with the hope that it will get performed as well. I'm also working on a collection of short stories, very dark with uh, the, 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 the common th um, theme is neighbors and how creepy they can be. <laughs> um, so there's that, and I'm finishing up a collection of short stories in French, um, also pretty dark, um, all fiction though. Um, I have a, I'm focusing on fiction nowadays. So once that's done, it's probably going to be the project to be done first. Um, uh, I'm, I'm just having fun. Uh, I'm enjoying writing. I'm enjoying reading, and I'm just happy that we we are in a community where we can flourish as writers and as readers because there's so much going on, particularly with the Miami Book Fair. MJ Fia, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming by to talk to us about your work and about what you like to read. Thank you, Morva. Thank you, the Miami Book Fair. Um, such a pleasure to be here and talk about my passion. Thank you. We also want to thank the Miami Book Fair International for sponsoring today's show and for hosting us at the Freedom Tower in downtown Miami. 
please go to our website, readmorepodcast.com, to find out how you can win a free signed copy of MJ's A Sky, the Color of Chaos. You can also follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more. <laughs>